Right on. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer as we come to God's word this morning. Father, help us. Help me, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, throughout uh, the last number of months, we've been going through the gospel of Matthew. If you're new here this morning or visiting, we've just been plodding our way through this gospel, uh, right, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And one of the themes that uh, I just felt God was wanting us to pull and draw out all the way through as we've been going through is, is that uh, focus on King Jesus and the message of the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. And as we've been making our way through this gospel account, Matthew's gospel is not a, a gospel that is done in chronological order. Matthew is telling his story in a logical order. He is wanting to communicate certain things about King Jesus and about the message of the kingdom. And as Matthew, as we've been going through this, what we've, we've seen the whole, the whole story of the king just play out. And over the last number of chapters, we've been watching as this opposition is growing to Jesus. And as we pick it back up here now this morning in Matthew chapter 15, things are going to escalate to a new level. A delegation is going to come all the way from, Ga- from Jerusalem to the Galilee to ask a very important question to Jesus. And so let's dive in here and, and uh, see what happens. In verse 1, it says this. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. <gasps> what? Can you imagine, like here, this is big enough issue that a delegation of elders, teachers of the law, men who are essentially lawyers in regards to the scriptures and in the traditions of the Pharisees, make the journey all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee. Now today, when you go to Israel, I mean, that's like a two and a half, three hour drive and a nice tour bus. This is, a, this is an entourage making its way all the way from Jerusalem out to the Galilee on foot or on saddle or whatever it is, to come and ask this important that was really pr- question that was really pressing on their hearts. And it was this, this question, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Uh, this had to do with the tradition of the elders here we read. And you see, the Pharisees taught this. The Pharisees taught that on Mount Sinai, when, when, Mo- when God gave the law to Moses, Moses took those laws and he wrote them down and they became the written word of God, the, the law of God. But they also taught this, that on the mountain, there were certain things that God spoke to Moses and those things were not written down. They became the oral tradition of the people of Israel. And these things were taught from the spiritual leaders of the nation from one generation to the next orally handed down and and passed down. And over the centuries... Uh, for the children of Israel, these traditions had grown. In fact, they really began to grow after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when the children of Israel came back from captivity into the land of Israel. And so what had happened was this, that the traditions had grown to the point where they were eventually written down and they were something, they were called this, the Mishnah. If you've ever heard a reference to the Mishnah, that is the writing down of the oral traditions that supposedly came from from Moses. 
And included in the Mishnah, when you put the Mishnah together, there's a commentary on it called the Talmud, and it's a set of books. It's like the size of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, for those of the Internet generation, the Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> is a set of books. You know, I grew up with them in our home. You could, you could look things up, information. They were ordered alphabetically. And, uh, you, you know, they were kind of our source of... Uh, our source before Google. Well, the oral tradition was supposedly handed down from Moses. It became like that. And, and the amazing part of it all is, now catch my sarcasm in this. The amazing part was that the religious leaders had remarkably and conveniently remembered all these things and handed them down and had begun to really weigh them over the people in the generations prior to Jesus. And one of their traditions was this. It dealt with the washing of hands. It was extremely important to them. You remember the Pharisees made accusations against Jesus? We've seen this throughout Matthew's gospel. One of the things they, they claimed was this. He does his miracles by the power of the devil. With demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus, we've seen this in previous chapters. He, he, he corrected that. He tried to you know, just point out how illogical that argument was. Well, I don't know if this particular question goes right back to that root, but I actually think that it does, that accusation against Jesus. Because here's what the elders believed, the teachers of the law and their oral traditions. They believed that when a person slept at night, a Jewish person, that, that, de that a demon would often come and sit on their hands. And so when they got up in the morning and they ate their meal, it was very important that they washed their hands. And there was specific method, you know, specific amount of water, a specific ritual, a specific way to go about this practice where you would cleanse before you eat because the danger was if the demon sat on your hand and now you eat, the demon takes possession of you. And so this was... They're believing. And of course, now recently, what, what have we seen in the last chapter in Matthew? How many people had Jesus fed miraculously? Bread that he broke, 5,000 people. You know the story. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. And so you see the problem of the Pharisees was this, is that their traditions had reached such a height that they actually believed their tradition to be greater than the word of God. It's, it's like this, you know, here's tradition and here's the word of God. It's not God's word on top of tradition for them. Tradition had taken authority over God's word. Dangerous thing. A dangerous thing. And so uh, they looked at their, their, their traditions as superior over the word of God. They didn't teach God's word. In those days, what they taught was the traditions of the Pharisees. And God forbid, the disciples hadn't washed their hands before they'd eaten. For that matter... They weren't making an accusation. There should have been 5,000 5, men plus women and children they should have been accusing as well. And so Jesus said this in verse 3. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Amongst the teachings and the traditions of the Pharisees was also this belief that if a person had something of value, you got something that's in your home, it's, it's really valuable to you, it's worth lots of uh, money, you could declare over that item, you could say it's korban. That's what they would call it, korban. Some of, your, some of your Bible translations might even say that, which meant this, that item, that article, I dedicate it to God, korban. You know, that piece of art, that piece of furniture, the the safe in the master bedroom with its gold and its silver in it, whatever it is, like you have at home. Uh, <laughs> no laughing. <laughs> you, you could still keep those things in your house. You could, you could keep them and use them for your purposes, but you had committed them to God. Technically, those items or that item was dedicated to God. And so what it turned into was a convenient way to refuse people who were in need. To refuse people who needed help. I mean, parents, for instance, you know, they get elderly, they need support from their children, but I've dedicated my possessions to the Lord, so sorry, mom and dad, I can't help you. And so that's what it had turned in. And so we see that the tradition these men taught and practiced actually became something that led them to break God's law. They, they weren't honoring their uh, fathers and mothers. Uh, specifically, Jesus points that out, that issue. And so it, it was all justified because they saw their tradition as having authority over the word of God, that oral tradition over the written word. And so here's the problem that Jesus points out. These men mistakenly thought that they drew near to God uh, with the practice of their tradition. Yeah, we do all the tradition. I mean, what does it matter where our hearts are at? We go about all the right things, like we're right before God. And what Jesus begins to point out is that their hearts were actually far from God. You know, I think in many ways we, we can do similar things. We can mistakenly just come to church, mistakenly just, you know, sing the songs, raise our hands because that's what we do, you know, deliver a timely amen, you know, doing all the things with your lips, that are right and sound right and look very much so proper for those who follow the Lord. And yet your heart can be far from God. You know that. I know that. Our hearts can be far from God. And thus, what Jesus says here about the Pharisees is this, is you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You, you don't see that the word of God talks constantly about your heart and where that is at. And the issue that Jesus pointed out was the heart. You know what we see in the scripture? Paul said this, it's with the heart one believes and is justified and then he confesses with his mouth. Nothing about going to church. Nothing about raising hands. That, all these different, all important. But the heart and where it's at comes first. In Colossians, we're, we're told, let God's word dwell in us richly and sing with thankfulness from your hearts to God. You think about our worship this morning? As we sing before God, where does it come from? Where should it come from? It should be coming from our heart. We love, we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, Paul said this, when you, when you give, don't do it reluctantly, be cheerful. 
purpose in your heart beforehand what you're going to do. And so the point, the issue that Jesus was pointing out for the Pharisees about their traditions and really the issue for us this morning is the same. It's the heart. Where is our heart at as we serve the Lord? Verse 10 says this, that Jesus called, called the crowd to him and he said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. We understand this, you know. This is not rocket science, is it? That, that it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. The mistake that the, the, the religious leaders were making about this hand-washing issue. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. The mouth, the Bible tells us, is the fountain of the heart. The mouth exposes what is going on in the heart. Verse 12 tells us, Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? So, of course, they're offended. You know, Jesus basically said, The tradition of the Pharisees is worthless. I mean, essentially, that's what he did. Like, if you think about it, Jesus just trampled all over their whole religious system. It's, it's easy for us to miss that as we read this story. Je- Jesus said the tradition of the Pharisees is worthless if it leads you to violate God's law. And so if you were a Pharisee, of course, you would be offended. You would be offended by that. Verse 13, he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both fall into the pit, into a pit. If the blind lead the blind, both fall into a pit. You know, in this, I just think, I think about our day and age, I just, sometimes I just find the words of Jesus so refreshing in this sense that, you know, we live in this day and age where everything is uh, preached under the, the umbrella of tolerance. Tolerance is the language of our culture, you know, offending someone is about the ultimate crime you can do in Canada. And I find the words of Jesus totally refreshing that he's like, they're blind guides, man. Ignore those guys. If you follow them, you're both going to fall into a pit. So move on. Verse 15, Peter said, explain the parable to us. I, I didn't realize this was a parable. What does Jesus say? Are you so dull? Jesus asked him, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands not defile them. You know, I, I think as, as I read this, I'm like, man, this is amazing to me that Peter has to ask for clarity on it. It's why Jesus says, what? Are you thick in the head, Peter? Are you so dull? And, and I mean, I would say this, you know, it, it's a shocker for us from, from the outside, but we know the reality is this, is that it can be really hard to see through tradition from the inside. What, what Jesus was teaching went against everything Peter had been brought up to, to really understand in many ways. The issue was not hands. The issue was the heart. The issue was the heart. 
And Jesus said all these things, uh, all these things, all these sins, these things that defile a person come from the heart. You know, Jeremiah uh, said this, that the heart, is, the heart is wicked and deceitful, that it's beyond cure. It's, it's the heart that defiles a person. It's my heart that spoils me in the sight of God. It's your heart that spoils you in the sight of God. It's your, your heart and the things that come from our hearts that separate us from God, the sin that comes from there. And that's why David said, Lord, I need you to create in me a clean heart. It's why we're dependent upon Jesus to wash us and cleanse us and transform our hearts and to renew that steadfast spirit within us that David spoke of. You know, when Jesus talks about this issue of, of the heart and the cleansing cleansing of the hands, I, I think that our culture has still not figured this out. Culture is totally on the side of the Pharisees. I mean, you, th- you think about it. I don't eat at McDonald's, man. I'm more righteous than you. It, it's the truth. In our culture, that is the truth right there. I just spoke it. I am more righteous than you if I don't eat that fast food garbage. You know, if only I had an electric car. Then I'd get preferential parking, you know. I'd be considered more virtuous than carbon-emitting, fossil fuel-burning, combustion engine, evil people. (laughs) You know, see, what you eat and what you wear and what you do matters in the culture of the world. People believe that such things make them righteous, make them better than others. But it's not those things that make a person righteous, What makes us righteous is the relationship with the Lord Jesus and it matters what comes from the heart and what is in our heart. See, the heart is the seat of our intelligence. The heart is the seat of our emotion. The heart is the spiritual center of a a man or woman and the heart must be submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. When your heart is submitted to Jesus, then you are free, my friends, When your heart is submitted to Jesus, you are free from the hand-washing rules of men. You don't have to wash your hands in the traditions of men. Instead, you, you learn to have your heart washed with the Word of God, to be made right before the Lord. And you enjoy the liberty that is in Christ, and you extend that same liberty to others. Leave behind the blind guides of tradition. That's what Jesus is saying here. Leave behind the blind guides of tradition. And the way to freedom from tradition, I would say this, is this, to be washed in the word of God. You need a daily time in God's word. Whether it's morning or evening or wherever, you need a daily time to be washed in the word of God, to give the word of God its proper place as the authority of your life and to set you free from the traditions of men. We read in verse 21 that leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terribly. And so as Jesus face this increasing hostility from the from the religious leaders from the pharisees from the teachers of the laws he faced the reality of being rejected by the people of israel for the first time what we see here is that his ministry moves beyond the boundaries the borders of the land of israel and he goes into modern 
Lebanon. It's a, it's a bit of a haul. I think it's about 80, 80 miles from where he was to Tyre and, and Sidon. And there, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him and begins to cry out for help. And the problem was her daughter. Her daughter was suffering terribly under the possession of a demon. Now, I think this is kind of interesting. If you kind of just pull the story of the Pharisees that they thought if your hands were unwashed, what would happen? Demon could possess you. And so now we have the story of someone who is possessed by a demon and they're suffering terribly. Matthew tells us very clearly, this woman is a Canaanite. Meaning this, she, she is not counted amongst the people of God. She comes from uh, uh, the worship practices of, of a people that, that practice things that were evil. They sacrificed their children, the Canaanites. They did all sorts of things in, pursuits of their, in pursuit of their gods. And this woman had, on some level, exposed her daughter, I would say, let's read between the lines, to the worship of demons. And the young girl was possessed, and she was suffering terribly from what was going on. And she's a mom. This lady's a mom. Like, I imagine she's, she's tried everything to find freedom for her daughter. And so... Jesus rolls into town. She hears that people are calling this man, this miracle worker, the son of David. And so she joins them in crying out, son of David, have mercy on my daughter. The title, son of David, is, is given to Jesus in reference to a prophecy that was spoken to David, a thousand, King David a thousand years earlier. The prophecy about David was this. The prophecy, the word of God that came to him was this. David, you will have a son, a descendant, who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. He will be the Messiah. And so the, the title, son of David, is a messianic title. It's saying, this is the king who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And, and the Jews who, who recognized Jesus as the Messiah called him by that title, Son of David. Now, get the picture. All of a sudden, here's this woman. She's a Canaanite. She's calling for mercy, and she's calling Jesus by a very Jewish messianic title, Son of David. Now, as we, as we read this, I really think we have to read into the context of the, the earlier account of the, the Pharisees. And I, and I think this about this woman. What the heck does she know about the son of David? What does she know about the son of David to call him that? And I have to say, I think nothing. I think she knows nothing. Matthew wants us to know that. She's a Canaanite. She heard others calling him son of David. Probably Jews referring to Jesus. And so she borrowed the term and she employed it as she cried out for mercy. What do you call this guy? I don't know. Other people call him Son of David. Son of David, have mercy. Verse 23. Jesus did not answer a word. You've never seen Jesus refuse anyone in the story of the Gospels. Yet you have to think that if there's one thing that pulls at the heartstrings of King Jesus, it's got to be a mother crying out for her child, right? A mother who's crying out for mercy on behalf of her child. But Jesus does not answer a word. The word, the word spoke not a word. Which was very unlike him. 
He, he was the one who was always ready to give responses to those who called out to him. And he answers not a word. Verse 23 continues. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. Not only did Jesus not answer her cries, but the disciples say, man, this woman's annoying. <laughs> She's bugging us. Like, get rid of her, Jesus, already. Like, get her out of here. Verse 24 he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. You know, as you read this, I mean, don't make the mistake. Has Jesus spoken to the woman? He has never spoken to this woman yet at this point in time. When he gives the answer, he is speaking to his disciples. Get rid of her. I was, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. So, you know, as you read this, you think, wow, this lady should be getting to the point, you know. Maybe go away in her despair. But she didn't give up. Even when everything seemed to be against her, even when the heavens were brass, she didn't give up. And we know this about Jesus. Jesus knew she wouldn't give up. In fact, you have to believe that Jesus was seeking to draw something else out of this woman. He was seeking to draw something else from her. And I, I really believe that this story is an illustration of the principles that we read in the story of the Pharisees about the hand washing and the heart. Jesus was seeking to draw something else out from this woman. Look at verse 25. Then the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. You notice, notice the posture? She's kneeling before Jesus. She, she, she knelt before him. Other translations, you may have a translation that says this. It says she worshiped him. She, she got down on her knees and she began to worship him. You know, kneeling is the, the posture of worship. And, and, and something else happens here because all of a sudden now, she's not talking about her daughter. There's no plea for mercy for the daughter. She gets on her knees and she says, Lord, help me. You know, at first, when she first came to Jesus, she tried to employ all the right words. Son of David. Like the right words were like magical. Super, what's that word? Super fragilistic, expialidocious. Like you're going to get the phrase right and it's going to be magic and you're going to invoke King Jesus to get off his throne and to touch your, your daughter. She might have even said, look, Jesus, I washed my hands. Doesn't that unlock your miracle power? She was thinking in terms of human traditions. Jesus, I didn't eat at McDonald's. I have an electric, electric car. Okay, Jesus, I, I pray in King James, man. These and thous, and I'm like, I got it down. I sound good at Wednesday night prayer. I count the rosary beads. I say all the right titles. I wash my hands. I was baptized as a baby, Jesus. See, the Canaanite woman thought that she had the formula right. She called Jesus the son of David, and she failed to get any response. In fact, I'd say this. She failed miserably because there was not a word mentioned from Jesus. In fact, Jesus gave her no response until she decided, I got to just throw the formula away and begin to worship him. In my brokenness, begin to pour my heart out to him. And that's when... 
he, he responded. She knelt and she worshiped Jesus. And I'll tell you what, when formula fails, worship will work every time. When your formula fails, when the King James prayer is not working, worship will work every time when you come to King Jesus. You know, the Greek word that's translated to kneel or to worship is proskuneo, and it means this, to turn and kiss. I'm going to get myself in trouble. <laughs> My wife's not in the room. So this is just a secret between us, okay? <laughs> you know, uh, when you kiss, there's no formula. There's no formula. You know, the first time I kissed Lisa, we were out on a date, you know, we were in downtown Vancouver. We ended up at Prospect Point. Anybody ever been to Prospect Point? We, yeah, whoo, I heard the whistle. We made our way down, you know, to that nice walkout point, and I'll tell you what, there was no formula. There was just an opportunity. <laughs> there was no formula. There was just an opportunity, and it had to be spontaneous and simple and sincere, and I'll tell you what, it was freaking awesome. And I'll tell you what, worship is supposed to be like that. Friends, worship is supposed to be like that. There's no formula. It's not a procedure. Oh, we can slide into that. You know, the worship leader gives us a, hey, welcome. You know, we just blow the first song off because it's just kind of warming us all up. And then, uh, you know, we go through the procedures of entering in. I'll tell you what, worship is not a procedure. Worship is creative. Worship is to be spontaneous. Worship is to be simple and sincere. See, worship is like turning and kissing your spouse. You turn and you, you kiss Jesus, so to speak. Worship kneels before him and worship says, Jesus, I throw out the formulas because I just want to kneel before you. I just want to worship you. I just want to be in your presence. I just want to hear your voice. I just want to see your face. Nothing else matters because, Jesus, I need you. Help me. You know, King David, we read about him in the Old Testament when he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem finally. And the scripture tells us that he danced before the Lord and he, he got undressed. You know the story that Michael, his wife, was offended. She rebuked him, said, oh, haven't you made a fool out of yourself in front of everyone today? David rebuked her. See, David didn't, David didn't robe himself in all the dressing of royalty. No, he disrobed himself before God in humility and in spontaneity. You know, he might have been a king. He was a king. He could have worn a crown, the arm bracelet, the robes, the purple, the blue, the this and the that. But David didn't dress himself in those robes of royalty. No, he disrobed. He got undressed. And he just creatively expressed his heart to God with sincerity and with energy and with joy. He may have been a king. You know, I'll tell you something. You're a king. If you are in Christ Jesus, men and women, you are kings and queens, princes and the princesses of the kingdom. But David didn't worship on the basis of that. No, he took it all off and just worshiped Jesus. And so as we consider this story, notice what she says. She says, not my daughter, Lord. She knelt down. She said, help me. 
I love this. Spurgeon said this. I urge you who seek the conversion of others to follow her example. Notice she did not pray, Lord, help my daughter, but Lord, help me. Help me. You know, if there's someone in your life that you are longing to see set free by King Jesus, then I would encourage you to become a greater worshiper of Jesus. Ask him to help you. Spurgeon also said this. He said, I commend this prayer to you because it is such a handy prayer. You can use it when you're in a hurry. You can use it when you're in a fright. You can use it when you have not time to bow your knee. You can use it in the pulpit if you're going to preach. You can use it when you're in the sh- opening the shop. You can use it when you are rising in the morning. It is such a handy prayer that I hardly know any position in which you could not pray, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Same thing with this Canaanite woman. She ditched trying to get it all right. She ditched trying to get the words all right, and she worshiped, and she asked for the help she needed. And look at verse 26. It says this. He replied. Jesus replied. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. What? What, Jesus? He's speaking allegorically, but it it seems so harsh. When he speaks of the children, he's speaking of the Jews. Of course, the bread refers to himself, the bread of life, and the dogs refer to who? The Gentiles, the non-Jews. But here, there's something beautiful that's lost in translation for us from Greek to English, and it's this, that when Jesus refers to, to Genti- the Gentiles, to the Gentiles at, as dogs, he, he uses the word for little dog. Puppy, like a lap dog. Of course, in the Middle East, you know, there's a lot of mangy dogs roaming around in the Middle East. Uh, they're, they're mangy and they're scavengers and they eat trash and they live in the, the, the garbage dumps and they're not, they're not pets. They are, you know, just wild scavengers that have no owner. And often when a Jew would speak about a Gentile, that was the reference they would make. Mangy scavengers. But there's other kinds of dogs, like, you know, we have one at home. She's a seven-pounder. You love those kind of dogs. You know, they sit on your lap. They, they go under your bed. They, uh, they, they greet you when you come home. Our, our dog suffers. We, we say at home she suffers from OCS, OCGS, obsessive-compulsive garbage sniffing. And we consider her a legitimate member of the family. She likes nachos. I don't know. She likes nachos, okay? And she roams the dinner table. When we sit at the dinner table, she roams, and she is hoping to score crumbs that fall. And guess what? You know, I like to slip her a little something once in a while. You, you know the deal. Like, you know, I try not to let the kids see, but if we're having some steak or something, I'll just cut off a little piece of fat and down to the dog under the table when no one's looking. And... You know, here's the thing. I feed my kids first and foremost, of course. But that little puppy has a place in our hearts. She has a place in our home, and we make sure something falls from the table. You do the same thing at your house if you got one of those dogs. And Jesus says to this Canaanite woman, my primary focus is my kids, the Jews, to which she says, really witty here, Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. (laughs) 
she, she, she jumps into the allegory. She says, that's right, Jesus. I'm a lapdog. I'm a puppy. I, I'm cruising the table waiting for a scrap to fall. She, 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 she essentially says this. I, I understand, Jesus, that you are working within a certain set of priorities within your kingdom. And I'm willing to eat whatever will fall from the table. You know, just like that bastard sometimes unintentionally, intentionally slips the food off the table. And I like that. You know, I think in many ways, you say, oh, Jesus, help me. And sometimes we don't get the answer that we want, but sometimes Jesus is working within a certain set of uh, priorities in terms of his kingdom. You say, Lord, if the scraps come from the table, I'll eat those. Verse 28, then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. You have to love and you have to believe that, that Jesus, uh, Jesus knew what was going on all along here. He, he knew what he was doing all along. He knew that he would heal. He knew that he would bless this woman. The, the logic of worship and the logic of love always takes the heart of Jesus by storm. And he says this, great is your faith. Great is your faith. No, no one else ever received that accolade from Jesus to say that. Great is your faith. And what was he teaching her? He was teaching her that tr what true worship is. She found no answer from him until she learned to ditch the, the formulas that she thought she needed to go through in her head. And Jesus led her through this process to put away the formula and just cry out from the heart. I'll tell you what, some of you have been knocking on the doors of heaven and it's like brass. You say, God, what's going on? How come you're not hearing? How come you're not answering? And maybe I would just leave this with you this morning. Could it be possible that Jesus is teaching you to ditch your formulas and just cry out to him from your heart? You know, Jesus, I did my quiet time. And we tithe at church. We went on Sunday. We didn't miss a Sunday all summer. Wait, that was none of us. Um, whatever, right? You put, you're trying your formulas from the heart. And, in that, and, and you got to ditch the formulas and just cry out from your heart. And in that moment, when she cried out from her heart, her daughter who suffered from a demon that tormented her was healed instantly in Jesus' name by his power. And the life that was tormented was now ruled by the peace of God. Peace of God really entered that whole home for the first time. And the peace of Israel's rejected Messiah for the first time really had done this. It had gone into a Gentile home in Tyre and Sidon, modern Lebanon. See, rejection of Jesus in Israel resulted in the gospel beginning to go forth to the very ends of the earth. And, and we're going to see this more and more in this gospel. Jesus is going to have interaction with the Gentiles. As I think about this text this morning, I'm not going to go all the way through this entire chapter. I actually wanted to stop there because I feel that the next part of the story is important to us too and we need to give it the proper time. But as we think about this story of the Pharisees and the account of this Canaanite woman, the application for us is this. <laughs> the heart matters. 
The heart matters. And in our walk with Jesus, we need to put away the formulas, put away the traditions, the form, the phrases, and follow the, the example of the Canaanite woman who learned to just get on her knees and worship. The spontaneity of a kiss. The example of David who unrobed and worshipped with simplicity and sincerity. See, following Jesus is something that happens from the heart. A communion between your inner life and the living God who made you. It, it's not form of religion and rules and over the centuries of religion, that has been the great mistake. And that is where the, the message of Christ Jesus is so different. It's not form and religion and tradition and all of these things. It's simply worshiping him who created you and gave his life on a cross so that your sin might not separate you from the God who made you. My friends, there must be a personal relationship in your heart with the Lord Jesus Christ. As we talk about this worship this morning, your worship will always be form and ritual and religion and tradition until you surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. Until he has your heart. And then you can learn to just get down on your knees and worship. Worship. 